previously on Here's What I've Heard. No, and he ended up so many car accidents after that. Of course, he never killed anybody else, but he nearly killed himself many times. It was just destined that he was going to end up, you know. In September of 1969, Rose divorced Tommy. Rose tried to move on, but Tommy hung around, she says. He'd show up unannounced and threaten to hurt them, or worse. But three months after the divorce was finalized, it wasn't Rose or her children who were the victims of violence. It was Tommy. When I first interviewed my dad, he told me that while he liked finding out about his parents and learning more about them, he never really had a burning desire to find out what happened to the drunk driver that killed them. So you said something interesting before. You, so you were told that the driver died? Mm-hmm. The driver was killed in the accident. Do you think they just said that or do you think they actually thought that that's what happened? Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Not killed in the accident. Um, My grandmother... Why did I say that? My grandmother told me that he was... No, she did say he was killed. She didn't say in the accident, but I just assumed that. That's why. And then later I found out that she... Later, when I was older, she let it out one day that... We were talking about it, and I said... Uncle Paul still thinks, I said, Paul still thinks that he's alive. And my grandmother goes, I don't know why he would believe that. He's been shot. He was shot dead. So you said you didn't really care to know what happened to the driver, but like, you weren't curious at all, like what happened to him or anything? Well, I knew, like she said, he was shot. So I just kind of out of my brain, you know, went out of my brain, okay, he's dead, so what's, you know, yeah. there's really no point in... Yeah. This was actually news to me. He'd never told me that he knew Tommy Kaler was dead. It just never came up. So when I came across Tommy's divorce record, and then his death record a few years before this conversation with my dad, and discovered that the dates were only three months apart, I was floored. Over 40 years had gone by at this point, so I knew the chances of him being alive were getting slimmer every year. But the idea that he could have died so young had never crossed my mind. Even so, I knew then that something unusual had to have happened for him to have died at only 27 years old. I thought maybe it was a disease or another car accident. I never once suspected homicide. That conversation with my dad didn't happen until eight or nine years after I learned Tommy died. A few months before, I'd been digging around the newspaper archive 
and decided to do a search on his name again. I'd been down this path before, but it had been months since my last attempt. I hit search and watched my screen buffer for a second or two. Ah, there we go. At the top of the page were the usual results. Articles about the accident and the odd update on the case that made the bigger newspapers. But then, I saw something new. An article from the Modesto Bee, a newspaper that hadn't been available in the archives before. Dated December 15, 1969, it read, Coral ends in fatal bullet wound. Thomas Leon Kaler, 27, was shot this morning in his estranged wife's Waterford trailer house during an argument with James Russell Neely, 30, identified as Mrs. Rosalie Kaler's boyfriend. Kaler died two hours later. Neely, who apparently had been living in the trailer, was jailed about 10 a.m. on a murder charge. Stanislaw County Sheriff deputies said Kaler arrived at his estranged wife's trailer about 4 a.m to visit the two children and to give them Christmas presents. Deputies said Kaler apparently became angry when he found Neely in the trailer. Neely said Kaler threatened him and was coming at him with a knife when the single shot from the 22 caliber revolver filled Kaler. Kaler was assisted to a couch by Neely and Mrs. Kaler and she called the sheriff's office. Kaler died in Scenic General Hospital. The slug hit Kaler in the abdomen as the two men argued in the kitchen of the trailer about 7.45 a.m. Neely claims he shot in self-defense. A few more articles with more details followed. I tried to open them, but the site kept giving me an error. I copy and pasted what I could of the preview text in a Word doc and submitted a ticket to the site's help desk. It was past midnight at this point, so I decided to call it a night. The next morning, I got up and went straight to the computer to see what I could find about James Neely. I learned that he was born in Oregon in 1939. His parents were named Martin and Francis. And in 1973, he married a woman named Rose Kaler. Yep, Rose Kaler, ex-wife of Tommy Kaler, the man he'd killed a little less than four years prior. I wanted to double-check the names and get actual images of the articles I'd found the night before, so I hopped back onto the newspaper archive and put one of the headlines into the search bar. But this time, absolutely nothing came up. I tried a second headline, but again, no search results. I tried different combinations, different phrases, all those I'd saved in my Word document. But over and over again, the search came up empty. I pulled up the list of available newspapers to try and do a manual search of the December 15, 1969 issue of the Modesto Bee, but it wasn't listed. I fired off another email to the help desk, explaining how I could only see previews of the articles the night before, and now I couldn't access that paper at all. The customer service rep got back to me quickly this time, explaining that the Modesto Bee was no longer part of the archive. The articles had been removed overnight. Had I not searched the day before, I may never have found them. And without those articles and the breadcrumbs they left for me, I probably never would have found Rose. Listen, it's a very hard thing to talk about, honey. It sounds... It sounds really, really horrible.
horrible, worse than I had. My husband and I, I had filed divorce uh, against Tommy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he used to come around and bother me and call me on the phone and say he's going to burn my house down and he's going to come and kill all of us. And he came over one night to cause trouble, and my boyfriend was there at the time. And he just threw a fit. He, he tried choking me to dress, to death. He tried everything he could to kill me. And this other guy, my boyfriend, stepped in and saw Tommy attack him. And then Tommy took a knife out and uh, attacked us, my boyfriend with a knife. The boyfriend was carrying a gun, so he shot him. Oh. And that's how he got killed. And the boyfriend, uh, it was self-defense. Mm-hmm. So something I never got over, you know. I just never got over that. Yeah. Not because he was dead, but because he had to die that way, you know. Yeah. This makes me look like a whore. <laughs> I'm no. sorry, honey. I, no, not at all. I don't think so. I don't so. know why I'm telling you all these personal feelings. I'm sorry. Rose doesn't need to tell me that this is a tough subject. I can tell by the way she relays the story that these memories haunt her in a really unique way. You might not have noticed the first time, but when you get a chance... Rewind a bit and listen to her tell that story again. She repeatedly refers to her husband as the boyfriend, as if he was just a person she was dating at the time. Later, she confirmed to me that her second husband's name was James Neely, the man noted in the paper as the person who shot Tommy. So I know we're talking about the same person. But it's as if she split James into two separate people in her memories, the guy she married and the guy who killed another man. If you're wondering what about this situation made her feel like a, quote, whore, remember that this was towards the end of the 60s. While the free love movement was definitely in the works, there was still a lot of judgment aimed towards women who live with their boyfriends, especially a woman with two children from another man. And I don't think it makes you look bad at all. I think it's a hard thing that everybody went through, and I I don't think... I don't think it makes you look bad. I think if I were in your shoes, I would be looking to move on to, you know. Um, Thank you, honey. So I don't, I have no judgment. <laughs> but, Thank you. Mm-hmm. That makes me feel a lot better. A no. lot better. It's been so many years. And I carry that so long, you know. Mm-hmm. I've never talked about it with anybody. Nobody knows how my husband died. They ask, but I, I just, I don't want to tell them, you know, because I feel so bad. Mm-hmm. But his family really hated me after he died. Rose told me that due to these circumstances, and the fact that she'd left Tommy, she felt as though her former in-laws blamed her for Tommy's problems after the accident. I lightly broached the subject with Tommy's sister, Carol but it was clear she didn't want to talk about it, and I didn't feel comfortable pushing the issue further. Another sister, Wanda, refused to talk to me about Tommy at all, telling me that she didn't remember anything about him, even though she was older than him by roughly 10 years. Wanda's daughter followed her mother's lead when I connected with her on Facebook. She wrote, quote, They have always been very upset about what happened to their brother, and I guess if she doesn't want to talk about it, 
It should be left alone. I pressed again, explaining that I didn't want to portray just one side of the story. I wanted to hear what they had to say too. But she still declined to speak with me, saying, quote, at least you can understand that it can be a little one-sided. I appreciate that. Thank you. End quote. I may not ever know what happened that night beyond what I've been told by Rose in the papers. And I may never have a complete picture of Tommy Kaler. He was a troubled person who had a problem with alcohol. That much was clear. But what's muddier is the type of person he was deep down. Well, maybe not for Rose. He was a very mean person. Yeah. And I, for one, was glad when he was gone. I'm sorry, honey, I shouldn't say that. On the other hand, Tommy's sister Carol says he was a nice guy. But I can't help but think that a nice guy usually isn't remembered by his wife as someone who threatened her life. A nice guy doesn't continue to drink and drive after he kills four people. And a nice guy doesn't usually end up dead when another person is forced to use self-defense. It begs the question, was he mean all the time or only when he was drunk? Maybe Carol, like Rose, safeguards her heart by remembering her brother as two separate people. The nice boy she grew up with, who went on to be a good father, and then the man who could be violent and dangerous. After Rose left Tommy, she worked as the manager of a motel. It was there that she met James. Was a good man. Yeah. Can you tell me more about him? Uh, he was a, a hard worker. He worked in plants and, and what they used to call plants. So that they didn't have any more. But he was a, 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 I can't even tell you what he was. <laughs> he did all kinds of, of jobs. He was a good, hard-working man. And I was kind of happy that I found him and we had a good, a long time together. And where'd you meet him? I met him in a, a motel. <laughs> Again, this sounds bad. <laughs> I met him in a motel because I was managing a motel at the time. And he came to, he was on a job, a roofing job. And he came to, to stay a week in the motel, and that's how I met him. Uh-huh. I shouldn't say that, but he'd be loved to say that. I met my wife in a motel. <laughs> that's funny. He loved that. <laughs> that's funny. But then one Monday night, a few days before his son's birthday and the Christmas holiday, Tommy showed up at Rose and James's door. It's unclear whether this was a planned visit, because Rose says that Tommy often showed up unannounced. I haven't seen any other information to confirm this, but in the initial report from the Modesta Bee, Tommy is listed as living in Milwaukee, Oregon, at the time of his death. If he arrived at 4 a.m., as the article states, he probably would have left Oregon around 5 p.m. the night before. Tommy wasn't shot until nearly four hours after he arrived and, quote, found Neely in the trailer, end quote. So I imagine that Rose answered the door and let him in, not telling him that her boyfriend was sleeping in the bedroom. Perhaps James heard them talking or arguing later in the morning. Or maybe Tommy insisted on sleeping in the bedroom and discovered James there himself. This is all speculation. Rose hasn't offered these details when I've asked. But at 7.45 a.m., an argument ensued. By 10 a.m., James was being carted off by the police. 
A few days later, on December 22nd, the Modesto Bee reported. James Neely, 30, acted in self-defense on December 15th when he shot and killed Thomas Leon Kaler, 27, in a Waterford trailer house, a Stanislaw County coroner's jury has ruled. The jury returned the justifiable homicide verdict after an inquest over the matter Friday afternoon. Tommy Kaler was dead, and James Neely was free. He and Rose continued to live with one another in California. They had a child together in 1970, and three years later, they tied the knot. Oh, the funny thing was, he didn't approve of living together before marriage. And so he, he decided we was going to go to Vegas with my brother and his wife just for fun, just go for fun. And it was quite a ways from California where we lived. And I didn't drive at the time. And I, of course, I didn't have my money. I didn't have no... That time, I was kind of like still very young, didn't have a checkbook or nothing. So we went to Vegas, and when we got there, he told me that I either marry him or I walk home. And I said, well, for this, I'm going to walk home. <laughs> I tried, and I think I got about a mile, and I couldn't go any farther. And he came and pulled up the slide and said, well, are you going to marry me or not? And I said, yes, <laughs> please, <laughs> get me out of the seat. Later, Rose and James adopted a son. James passed away in 2007, but he and Rose's two children are still living. The two children Rose had with Tommy, however, have since passed away. Yes, we had a boy and a girl, and they're both dead now. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's hard on me. Yeah. I survive. They were good kids. Well, I should say, my son was a very good, decent person, church, went to church, and he was just a good man. But my daughter was, she was a drinker. She she drank, it killed her. She drank a fifth of vodka a day and then just killed her. Alcohol overdose or poisoning, I think it was. Hmm. Alcohol poisoning. But she was like her dad, and my son was more like me. And uh, I still, to this day, you know, it hurts. Yeah. It hurts. So I have nothing of my husband left. I had these two kids, but I have nothing anymore. Eventually, my conversation with Rose turns to Jerry and Paul, two of the other children whose lives were changed by Tommy and his actions. Could you tell me how the children are? I tell her that they're doing okay, even if they did grow up a little goofy. A few weeks after my conversation with Rose, they proved my point by making fart jokes in the middle of a cemetery. humor. <laughs> Slightly twisted, but definitely funny. <laughs> yeah. Or is it very twisted and definitely funny? I tell Rose that their lives weren't necessarily easy, but they came out the other side stronger, with family and friends, and lives their parents would be proud of. So, um, so you know, 
it, it all it all turned out okay. <laughs> um, That's wonderful. You know, I, I, I have thought about those boys my entire life. Mm-hmm. I wondered what happened to them. When I sat down with my dad, I asked him how he would sum up his life. He told me that at Milton Hershey, he didn't feel like he was any different. Every kid had a story there. So as far as that goes, it's like when you go into school and you're like, well, one kid, you know, if the kids ask you what happened, you tell them and they're like, oh, that's, you know, that's sad. And then they're like, they tell how they're, you know, what happened to their parents or what's going on with their parents. You know, some guys had moms and some guys still had dads and different things. And it's just like, you don't really think that that's the way everybody's life is but you're like thinking like until I actually got out of Milton Hershey and was telling people about what happened to me that I realized that it was it's it's kind of an exceptional story compared to other people's lives like I just seen other kids there that had if you can believe this they had worse situations than me so the one kid, his father tied him to a chair and shot his mom in front of him. Oh my God. And he basically was picked up, slapped into Milton Hershey, no, like, doctors or nothing. Psychologists and stuff. No psychologists, just put him in Milton Hershey. And, it, and he was doing the best he could. I mean, he was okay. He wasn't failing or anything, but he wasn't like, he had problems, you know, physical problems. And so. How old was he? I found out this story when he was in ninth grade and he basically was still wetting the bed. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't find any physical reason, I guess, why he was wetting the bed. But when he would get real scared, um, he would wet himself. And uh, I found out later what happened to him. So, you know, uh, back in back in those days, they didn't believe in any of that stuff. So they just kind of, like, felt that they could beat it out of you, you know. You, so... Jerry didn't really think his story was anything out of the ordinary until he started working at his current job. I told people, and they just got this astonished look on their face, like they couldn't believe. But back at school, it was a different story. Nobody could care less. They could have cared less, you know, so. Um, And I didn't really tell a lot of people about it. I just, because, you know, you don't want it to define your life. That's not... Like, you don't, like, use it as an excuse for things. So, but... How do you think that your life would be different if that had, like, never happened and... Like, do you think you'd still be in California? What would you think? Well, I think I... I think I would have still went to college because my father really was about education and I think that's what he really wanted um I think I would have had an actual skill like I would have known how to do things like I don't know how to fix anything or anything like my father probably would have taught me how to do things and um 
from the pictures and stuff, it looks like my mother was into the uh, arts. My father sang, and I think I probably would have still sang. I still would be singing. Um, uh, uh, the whole reason I got into singing was because my grandmother told me that my father was a singer, and so I decided to uh, do that. Um, I don't know, I just, I would have had a different life because I would have been in public school and I would have, growing up with all guys is a lot different than being in a public school. It's a, it's a different situation. Um, I don't know how else, because you never know, you know, with parents, you never know what's going to happen. Like most, a lot of parents get divorced or different things, you know, so might have been a surfer, dude. Yeah, well, we weren't that close to the beach. We were actually pretty far away. I think so. Probably wouldn't have me. <laughs> hmm. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I asked my Uncle Paul what he thought. Oh, God. I've been told that our parent, well, young kids' fantasies, maybe, I don't know, that our parents were great together and would have done a fantastic job of raising us. Uh, out in California, totally different environment than what we're, we ended up with. Uh, I don't know. I, I really don't know. Even though she knows that ultimately, Jerry and Paul are okay, Rose still feels guilt over what happened. She told me that at the time, she wished there was something she could do for them. She knows it wasn't easy for them to grow up without parents. No, I just, uh, it eases my mind to know that the boys are okay. And I'm really sorry about him having such troubles, you know, really. Could you... Please apologize to him for me. I did pass along her message, but my dad has a message too. You just gotta make kids realize there's no, you know, there's no holidays, no. It's, it's all like, you know, Mother's Day rolls around, Father's Day rolls around, you know, Christmas, Easter, and it's all, it's not there anymore. So it's like if you decide to drink and drive and you take that from somebody, that's what you took from them. I think back to that photo from the Klein's last Christmas in Avenal. The one memory my dad has from his early childhood that isn't tied up in conflict. And I feel a load of sadness for Linda and Jerry. That same week, they would celebrate the start of 1965, another year in the life they had worked so hard to build for their young family. And yet, they wouldn't even live to see another Christmas. And I always tell my dad, I said, hey, if it didn't happen, you wouldn't have moved back to Pennsylvania and you probably wouldn't have met my mom and had me. So it all worked out okay for me, yeah, I guess. It worked out great, didn't it? <laughs> yep, <laughs> for me anyway. Well, that's wonderful. In reality, there's no way to know if the Kleins' lives would have led back to Pennsylvania or if my grandparents would have stayed in California. We'll never know if my dad would still be singing today or if Paul would have his pigs. 
The only thing we can do is learn from people like Tommy and vow not to make their same mistakes. Laws have changed quite a bit since 1965, mainly due to the efforts of organizations like Mothers Against Drunk Driving or MAD. In the United States alone, the number of drunk driving deaths has been cut in half since MAD was founded in 1980. Even so, the CDC reports that 28 people in the U.S. die in alcohol-related motor vehicle crashes every day. That's one death every 51 minutes. So here's where I get a little preachy. If you've had too much to drink, take a rideshare home, crash on a friend's couch, take the time to sober up before you get behind the wheel. Think of Linda, deeply in love, not just with her husband, but with her three small kids. And Jerry, who never had much growing up, but sacrificed and served his country to carve out a better life for his family. Think of Robin at 15 months old in a brand new dress that was meant for Sunday afternoons, but used for her funeral instead. Think of four-year-old Jerry Lynn and three-year-old Paul, left to weather the storm in the wake of tragedy. Think of Jimmy and his two small children, left without a father, and Larry with two plates in his head at 24 years old. Think of the families who found this accident so traumatic and painful that it's been set aside for more than 50 years, the essence of the people involved nearly snuffed out completely, until finally, somebody started asking questions, and somebody else replied, Well, here's what I've heard. Yeah. Well, honey, I've enjoyed talking to you. You as well. Thank you so much for answering my question. I really do appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Anytime. All right. You take care. You too, honey. All Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. This has been the season one finale of Here's What I've Heard, produced by Courtney Abood and Craig Brown. Musical direction was provided by Julia Cannon, featuring Bobby Steinfeld on piano. Big thanks to our patrons. To be a patron and gain access to all the exclusive content that's been released throughout the season, visit patreon.com slash here's what I've heard. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash here's what I've heard. Or visit here's what I've heard dot com and choose donate from the menu. Have questions or comments about here's what I've heard? Have a pitch for an upcoming season? Contact us by emailing the team at here's what I've heard.com. <laughs>